Have you ever had those events in your life that just completely rocked you? I mean, just, just change the way that you think and change the way that you see things. Um, some of us, it was maybe you've gone through a divorce or a death, and that just shifted your entire idea of how life worked. Or for some of you, do you remember how you responded when you graduated high school or college? Remember that feeling of like, I just got my, I just got my degree and I don't know what to do with my life. You know, that feeling, or you're just like, now I got to go fight in the work world. There's this huge change. Some of you, it was marriage. You got married and you woke up and you thought, what in the world did I do? You know, you're kind of looking at the person next to you going, I know this person, but I didn't know this person. How is this going to work out? None of that was for me and my wife. We, we, we enjoyed all this process. I didn't have to struggle through a lot of that. We were blown away when my children were born. That altered our life like crazy. When my daughter showed up, that strong leader, we, she's an amazing girl. We always love to say she's either going to be a great missionary or a dictator of a small country. But she is... Um, she is a leader, and she is strong, and she is smart. And it just uh, when she showed up, she gave me and my wife a run for our money. We thought we had this parenting thing figured out. We gave people advice, and we came to realize we don't know anything. And, we, and then along comes Nate, and he was a sweet kid and has grown up to be one of three boys. And I think I could just stop the sentence right there, and I think you guys would get the idea. Three boys, it's intense with four kids running around and constantly reminding us, we don't know what we're doing. When you wake up in the morning and you see Andrew with a pail of Cheerios going like this, spinning around, and you're like, what are you? You know, you don't know to go ballistic, to laugh, to take photos. You walk down the hall, and you're the dad, and your daughter has colored on herself with marker all over the place and say, don't I look pretty? And you're going, I don't know how to respond to this. And it's, uh, this is the reality of what it's like to have kids. It's mind-altering. It's transforming. In fact, one of my friends who had kids, he told me this way. He said, you know what? This is the best way to define what it's like to have children. Your highs are higher. Your lows are lower. Your anger is stronger and your sadness is deeper. Just every emotion expands. Isn't that true? And there's, there's no more greater life-altering moment, actually, than when you encounter Jesus Christ. And there's something about that event, whether you've trusted in Jesus Christ or not. If, if you're here this morning and you, you're not a Christian, you're just here because some, a neighbor invited you, a friend invited you to church, and you, you came, and you're going, I don't really have this Christian relationship. You know, you kind of, this is the first time you've ever, you've ever sat in a church in a long time. Um, the encounter to Jesus' gospel is something that can be very polarizing to you or very um, earth-shattering in a sense, if you hear it rightly. And most people who do hear it rightly wind up with, with this war, this struggle that goes on and what happens. Because when Jesus shows up, big things hit and lots of things shake and lots of things get changed. In fact, he just did a miracle that would have radically shook Judea and Jerusalem. He had brought a man who is this friend named Lazarus back from the dead. And suddenly this aftermath explodes into the scene. That's what we left off last week with the aftermath. We didn't get into it. So we're going to this week. And you can find in John chapter 11, um, verse 45 through 57, we're going to look at one of the big aftermaths, the response, the shockwaves that comes after, out of this. And you'll find this passage on page 898 in the Bibles under your seats if you don't have a Bible. Or if you've got your device, you can just open it up again to John chapter 11. We'll be right there in verse 45. Now, it begins like this as you're turning there. Again, Jesus just raised his friend from the dead. Everybody has seen, they just unbound him. He's now able to walk around and talk. And then he wrote a book called Four Days in Heaven. It's been a best, I'm just kidding, that didn't happen. The, uh, 
But the reality is that uh, Lazarus, they don't speak about Lazarus, so it all focuses in on Jesus. And as a child, I can remember there was this little baby named Baby Jessica who got stuck in a well. Does anybody remember this? It like captured the attention of the entire nation for like two days straight. And that's exactly the kind of thing that's going on here. The, if there had been cameras, if there had been paparazzi, everybody would have been unleashed to this small town in Bethany, interviewing and testing probes and scientific ventures, and everybody wanted to find out how he did it and why he did it. And, but none of that's going on because it's just happened right immediately. And so it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Does that strike anybody odd? A world-renowned event has occurred. A man has come back from the dead. Jesus did it in a public setting. And many of them were like, holy cow, who's this guy? Who's who he said he is? Totally believe this guy. But some of them, they looked at the miracle and they went, uh, uh, we got to go tell the authorities. And off they ran. I find it interesting because in my discussions with people who aren't Christians, oftentimes, if they don't believe in God or they don't believe in Jesus, I say, well, what would it take for you to believe? And they say, well, if I saw a miracle, then I would believe. And I go, really? I don't think that's normally the case. I don't think it's, it's, it's a lock that you see a miracle and then you believe. See, seeing is not always believing because here, these men obviously saw the miracle, but they didn't believe. They saw Jesus act, but it didn't change their opinion about Jesus at all. What is going on here? And what I want to do is I want to take a brief foyer this morning into the anatomy of disbelief. That The Bible actually is going to open the door like an onion. It's going to peel back the layers on why some of us don't believe, why our friends, our family members may struggle to believe, and what is going on in disbelief. And it may actually challenge those of us who are Christians in this room. And I hope if you're not a Christian, you, you'll just kind of listen in and, and, and join with me in the, mental, in the mental thinking of this process and examine and check out what the Bible is saying here. Because I think it's, it's pretty fascinating as it lays it out. Because it starts with the disbelief in Jesus has more to do with assumptions than it has to do with facts. It has far more to do with assumptions that we bring to the table than the facts that we examine. And the reason I bring this up is because assumptions actually guide your interpretation. The what you bring to the table before you ever even engage the argument is often what you will end up with at the end of your argument because it's guided what information you'll accept and what information you won't. Your assumptions guide your interpretation. And so these guys are standing there and they're staring at a miracle and something that they brought had them interpret it radically different than another set of the groups. A basic example of how we do this in life is oftentimes we'll get into these arguments. And maybe you've gotten into one of these. I said this. You did not say that. You said this. Uh, Maybe I said, I said you look great. You did not say that I look great. You said I don't look that good. No, no, I know what I said. You don't know what I know what I heard. No, you didn't know I said it. I should know what I said. You didn't say that. I know because the way you were standing and the way that you looked at me while you said it, that you said this. No, I didn't. What we, you ever gotten into that conversation? I hope not. But the reality is two narratives are dictating what you hear. 
And we're not talking about the words. We're talking about our interpretation of what was going on. Happens all over the place. It happens in the case of when you meet someone. My wife was down getting our car fixed at the dealership. And so she needed, it was going to be a few hours. So she hopped in one of the cars that drove her to CBU. While she was in the car, she met the driver and she was been taking the class upstairs right now, our launchpad class. And she's like, I got to engage this person. I got to talk to them. I don't know this. And that's not her. So she tried. And this guy had, you know, some mannerisms and a way of talking and some things that she's like, oh, I think this guy is gay. And so she engaged in a certain way because she was interested in, in talking and meeting him. And, find, go, and as the conversation progresses for the 15 minutes in the drive, finds out this guy has a, has a, a daughter from a previous uh, girl he had been dating and now is married and has another kid on the way and he's really nervous about that. And she's just like, I had it all wrong. She had brought assumptions of what people were like and interpreted the reality according to the assumptions. Now, it was corrected, obviously, And that's the case. When we let our assumptions be corrected, we land on truth. But if we're not examining our assumptions, if we don't know what they are, they guide us and we don't even know it. So it's really important that that I ask this question, what assumptions are you holding? Because these guys were holding assumptions. In the book of Matthew, we find another miracle. Jesus finds this demon-oppressed man who's blind and mute and was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed. They said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, yeah, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. In other words, that's another name for Satan in their time period, that this man casts out demons. It's not by God he does it. It's by the demonic powers that he does what he does. And I believe these are the assumptions that some of these people brought to the picture. When Jesus raised the guy from the dead, they weren't going, that is done by God. They were thinking, this is a deception. This is bad. This is going to ruin our way of life. We, this, I need, we need to go tell. He, hey, and off they ran to the Pharisees. The narrative that they had constructed defined how they took and interpreted the facts. And so the question is, as you approach a question of Christianity, as you examine whether Jesus Christ is truly God or not, the question that occurs in disbelief is actually what assumptions are you bringing to the table? We all have to check our assumptions. I have to check mine when I interpret. I have to, and you do that. You do it on purpose because you need to be aware of your assumptions. And so if you approach Jesus and you assume miracles can't happen, then you're going to read it in a different way than somebody who assumes miracles can happen, that there's a God and that these things occur. And if you approach Jesus and you assume he's just a good teacher and really all this stuff was just made up by a vast Catholic conspiracy in the 400s, or you've watched a YouTube video that tells you actually it's an amalgamation of all kinds of religious perspectives and you're like, well, that makes sense. You're drawing to your assumptions and making a conclusion. My question isn't so much... Or my point isn't so much you shouldn't have assumptions. You can't avoid it. Everyone has them. My question is, have you unearthed them and been as skeptical about your assumptions as you are of what you're looking at? Have you given your own assumptions the same kind of rigor that you're wanting to give something like Jesus Christ? As you look at it and you examine it, you poke it and you argue with it, are you doing that to your own assumptions? Because it's in those assumptions that if you'll put the same doubt, level of doubt that you're willing to put on, say, Christianity and Jesus, you may discover you don't know why you believe what you believe. And in fact, 
Olive Branch, let me, my friends, let me say that this is actually the better route in conversations with people. Too often what we do is they're trying to unearth our assumptions, and that's right, and they're allowed to. And so we have to answer questions, but you are allowed to ask them questions about their assumptions as well. So how do you have a good world without a good God? How do you define good and evil without God in the first place? Well, what about the idea of a good, perfect God, and you hate evil, but you don't want a God who punishes evil? Well, what, doesn't evil just get away with things then? What kind of world is that? And are we okay with this? Where did it all come from? Why did it have to come that way? What shows that? These are questions we're allowed to ask as well. And oftentimes we need to unearth assumptions and ask questions about our assumptions in order that we can dig to the beginning place of disbelief. Much disbelief is born out of assumptions, but we need to dig even deeper. Why are those assumptions held? Why are those more exciting or more valuable than another set of assumptions? What, what is beneath that, that that keeps it standing strong? And that's where we go to next because it does go deeper. In fact, what we'll see is disbelief in Jesus comes more from a fear of loss, a fear of loss. Now, take a look at this because it switches in verse 47. So, the chief, so these guys run off and tell the Pharisees. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. Notice they don't disagree that he performs signs. They, they agree he does. And then they go on. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans, they're going to come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, that's interesting. So while they begin and they say, we have these assumptions about Jesus, our assumptions are that he does these great things, but he is, you know, this is bad. Why is your assumption that this is bad? Because if everybody follows him, the Romans are going to come and take away everything from us. They're going to take our power as the Pharisees and the leadership because we won't be allowed to lead anymore. They're going to take our temple, and so we are not going to have the power of the religion anymore. They're going to take our whole nation, which means we're not going to be Jewish anymore. What they were afraid of was they were going to lose their identity. They were going to lose their power. They were going to lose their prestige. They were going to lose their lives. And as they're looking at Jesus and they're looking at what's happened, it is the fear that begins to drive them to make the decisions that they make. They disbelieve in Jesus out of the fear of the loss that they will occur. And I believe at the essence of so much disbelief is actually the fear of what we could lose of what the fear of the things that are going to be given up if we were to follow Christ. The reason I, I believe this is because I've had many conversations with people, and I'll walk through the gospel in, in a variety of different ways, expressing what sin is as, as actually stealing God's identity and, and because we're made in his image and misusing it against him. So that even when you lie, you're insulting God because you represent him and you make him out to be a liar. When you lust, you misrepresent him and you make him out to be lustful. When you, when you gossip, you misrepresent him and make him out to be a gossip. So God's ticked. You stole his identity and misused it. Of course he's going to punish us. And people go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I say, but he doesn't want you to go to hell. He doesn't want to punish you. So he sent Jesus Christ to live perfectly, take on your sin and that punishment and give you his goodness. And it's an exchange, a gift. And they go, wow, that's awesome. I say, so what's holding you back from having that? And they go, well, and they rest. I'm like, well, tell me, it's okay. And they're like, well, I'm living with my girlfriend right now. And, uh, and you know, I just... I, I can't, I can't lose that. It just, it would be too difficult. I don't know what I would do. I go, really? I just explained you can have eternal life. You can have righteousness before God. You don't go to hell. Well, you know, 
And I've heard it another way. Many years ago, my in-laws had a friends that they were discussing Mormonism with and working through the process because they were Mormons and, they were, and uh, my in-laws are Christians and they were discussing this with very close, intimate friends. And as they discussed things, it finally came down to this, just the facts and the details were lining up too clearly that things didn't line up for, for their, 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 the Mormon religion. And finally I said, don't you see this? And he says, yes, I know you're right, but I'm never going to leave my family. And he wasn't willing to make a shift away from his family. Many Muslims will not change their faith, though they may see what you're saying because it would be to abandon their culture. And the reality is that this is the kind of response that occurs when we come to the reality of what Jesus is really asking of us. Because he is asking us to give up our identity. He's asking you to give up your family and your good things and your possessions. Yes, he wants you to abandon them all. In fact, the way that he puts it in the book of Luke is, if anyone would come to me after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, I, I can give that even in some cases, maybe there, that, that some of us have identified ourselves by our work and what we do. And that when Christ calls you to him, you may have to leave that job because it just won't work. You, you can't do some of the things that you're doing and stay a Christ follower. Or, or maybe you formed your identity after, after what you feel you've been born either born in a sexual identity or born in some manner, that you find your, that's, that's how you were born. It doesn't matter who we were here, how we form our identity or how we discuss it. The choice has been given to you. And the choice that Jesus says is, you deny yourself. You deny your identity. You deny your possessions. If you do not love your father and mother more than me, you cannot be my follower. You deny your family. Everything must be subservient to the lordship of Christ is what he's saying. That's heavy. It's so heavy. Many of us Christians have compromised theological beliefs in order to keep a compromise between Jesus' command for everything to be under him and our desire to make it okay with everybody around us. I get it. I have to live in that tension all my life. But the reality is very clear that he says everything. And so I think if you're struggling with the fear of loss and you haven't given your life over to Christ, you're being very, very honest. And I appreciate that. I think it's good for you to be that honest. It's called counting the cost. Jesus actually said you need to count that cost before you follow. And so he says, yeah, I expect you to give everything to me. These guys were counting that cost. We're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our nation. It's all going to go away. We can't possibly let this guy keep going. Timothy Keller puts it another way in his book, The Reason for God. And I think this is a great way. You see, when he had explained the gospel and he laid out that all of this, this exchange is given, Jesus takes your sin and he gives you all your goodness so you can stand before God and you can be saved from hell and you can have eternity in heaven with him. All that's a gift given to you, free, grace. You don't earn it. You can't, you can't deserve it. None of it. It's just yours. And this lady comes up and says, I am scared to death of what you just said. He's like, Why? And she said it simply. She said, because if I earned it, then I have a right to say what I believe or don't believe. If I earned it, I have a right to say no. I don't want that. But if it's grace and it's all given to me, I have no say. And in fact, he could ask of me anything then and I can't say no. 
And that's the reality of grace. When he gives you everything, he gives you your life. He gives you eternal life. He gives you your identity. He gives you everything. There is nowhere that he can't, there's nothing he can't ask of us. It is a call for everything. And that's a difficult call. And so Christians, hear me for a minute. When we approach our neighbors, when we approach our friends, and we start to explain Jesus Christ, and we, we hope that they'll receive it, see how great a cost we are calling them to. See how great a cost we're asking them to sacrifice to follow Christ. And you'll begin to see how difficult the decision can be to choose to follow Jesus. And I think that will give us compassion. And I think that will give us the reality there's more conversation and more time. Yes, unearth those assumptions, please. If you're not following Christ, unearth those. Look at them. Examine what you're assuming. But then what are you fearing you're going to lose? You need to know that. You need to see what you're afraid. I might lose this. I might lose that. I might lose my position. Maybe you're afraid that you're going to look dumb to your, to your colleagues at work because somehow becoming a Christian means you've thrown your intellectual mind out onto the, out onto the lawn. It's not true, but you may feel that way. You may fear that your family will disown you. You may fear all kinds of things, but you need to know what they are. You need to examine them and identify them. And so these people feared this. This is what they were, they were afraid of. And so up comes an interesting response then. And it's a response that humans have. This is a normal response. And I know it's normal because my kids do it. Now, I love using my kids because they are not, they're, they're children, you know. That shows the true human heart. A child will reveal to you what a human's really like. We're adults. We're not like children, right? <laughs> no, we just do what children do on grander scales. Let me give you an example. You've all seen this scenario in your house. It's played out in my house with three boys probably daily. One boy finds something that he really enjoys to play with. Maybe it's his Legos or maybe it's a video game or maybe it's a pencil that he really enjoys writing with and it's a colored pencil so everybody's like, ooh, cool colors. And he's sitting there, ooh, I got a special cool pencil and he's writing. Well, one of my other boys invariably will at some point walk up and go, that is a really cool pencil. I really want that pencil. Well, what does a rational human being do? They can just go up and say, I want the pencil. They grab it and they pull it out of the hand. That's not irrational. That's not what kids do. That's what we all do. When I see something, I envy it, I want it, I grab it, I take it. And that's what my kids do. Now, at this point, I have the right as the father and pastor of my home and church to walk up to my children and say, son, do you understand what was in your heart is covetousness and what you desired was what was already his and therefore you have stolen. I will not take the pencil back and replace it to its owner and you will go to timeout for an... Yeah, that's if I was a sane human being, right? No, that doesn't happen. I don't get a chance because the second that pencil is ripped out of one son's hand, the other son goes, that's my pencil! Punch, 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 punch. I will take you, I will... You know, it's all WWE all over the place. You know, they suddenly, they're link and they've got sores. You know, this whole situation, every time. It doesn't matter. You're, parents are not fast enough to get in the way for this interaction to, to stop. Are my kids the only ones like this? I'm just like, it's like, okay, maybe I put my kids on Ritalin or something. But um, the reality is, that's human behavior. James actually said, why is it you quarrel amongst each other, but that you, they have and you, and you want and you cannot have? The reality is, this is what starts wars, I have land. You took my land. You didn't have a right to take that land. Ah! That's human behavior. Human behavior overdoes the response. Attack! When somebody takes something you love and that you love dearly 
you will find yourself being the most angry. Let me say that again. If you find you love money and somebody wants even just a little bit of it, you're going to be angry. If somebody wants to take your prowess as an intellectual and they're asking you to remove that, take that away from you, even just a little bit of it, you're going to get angry. When you hit the core assumptions and you hit the core fears, the person you're talking to will get angry. It's when you know you've found the root. And the reality of anger is because when somebody wants to take something that is valued and dear to us, we are going to fight for it. Put this in the context of Jesus who comes and demands us to give him everything. And no wonder the critical response that comes back is so strong. Look at how Caiaphas responds. In fact, what we find is that it leads to fighting God's plan. He says, Caiaphas is the head. He's the, kind of the president of the Jewish people. He's over the, he's over the entire temple. And so he stands up. They've just said, the Romans are going to come take away our place in our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Isn't that a great way to start an argument? He is a very arrogant individual. And he goes on to go, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Let me tell you something. Let me explain something to you dummies. Sanhedrin, leadership of the Jewish people. I know better than you do. This is his attitude. But it's also interesting. This is a very common attitude found in another place, another source, namely Satan himself. Notice the statement that he makes. He says, not only say I know better than you, he says, nor do you understand that it is better for you. That sounds awfully sinister to me. It's better for you. It is better for you. In fact, in the, in the garden, back in Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of the Bible, the serpent, who is a personification of, of, of Satan, who comes in or is possessed by Satan, speaks to the woman. Now, the woman is by the tree that she's not supposed to eat from. The only law God gave them, that he's provided everything else, says, just don't eat of this tree. And she's near, and the serpent says, oh, come on, you can eat from it. And she's like, no, no, you can't even touch it or I'm going to die. And he's like, you're not going to die for sure. You will not surely die. God knows. When you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You don't know, but God knows. You don't get this. Let me tell you something. You're missing out. What's better for you is that you eat of this tree. What's better for you is that you conquer this people. What's better for you is that you have that toy. What's better for you is that you keep these things. What is better for you? It's a powerful lie. It is a powerful lie that the church has bought at times. In the Middle Ages, the church bought into that lie. It would be better for the nation if everybody was Christians. And so what did we do? Create things like inquisitions and keep people from believing. It, it, it happens right now in, in the Middle East. It would be better if we had a caliphate and controlled all of these nations. It would be better for you if you guys didn't, whatever. And this lie is used over and over and over throughout human history in order to bring about a power shift and adjustment of people. Caiaphas is using it here to say it would be better for us to kill Jesus and get rid of this guy so the nation doesn't have to suffer. Don't you guys get that? You know what we need to do. He needs to die. 
And what we're finding is that response is the response, an outward response of what Jesus brings from the inside. And one of the reasons I know this is, guys, I've talked to old men and I've met my friends who have had grandfathers who were staunchly unbelievers and you couldn't bring it up. And I said, why can't you talk to him about that? He says, because he gets angry. It's not that he was going to be violent, but he just gets angry. But violence is part of this. Across the nation, in 2014, we had a brand new situation. It was the most, it was the strongest persecution year the church had ever seen. More Christians died that year than we could add up for decades earlier. 2015 beat 2014. 2016 beat 2015. And according to Open Doors in their latest report, 2017 has been the bloodiest year for the church in church history. Because when the gospel comes in and it creeps in into India and it comes through Compassion International, India says, no, we are Hindu. And they kicked all Compassion International out of their country. And so any of us who have a child from India in, 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 with Compassion, you just got your letter that says we're not allowed to go there anymore. And they said it would be better that they be Hindu, which is really stating that these children who are in a caste called the untouchables, who are not allowed to get jobs, who are not allowed to be touched, cannot be loved because it's better for them to be Hindu. And the response and the reality is in Islam, in the world around us, and in persecution, Jesus told us, if they hate me, they will hate you. So don't be surprised, church, that persecution comes. It's the natural response when the world is asked to let go of everything that they hold dear and follow Jesus. Sometimes it's just grumpiness, sometimes it's a stubbornness, and sometimes it's vicious. And for Caiaphas, it was vicious because unbelief can lead to a violent rejection of God's plan. Just look at Paul, Saul. Saul was a man who when he had all of this stuff, prestige and rights and privilege, you meet him in the book of Acts. The first thing he does with all his assumptions about Jesus, assuming the church is horrible, and in his anger, he turns violent and starts killing and persecuting the church. The pattern is shown over and over and over through church history and through the Bible. Not saying again that everyone becomes violent, but the, really the question is, what do you, how do you respond when somebody offers you something better? When you see that what you believe is more valuable than what Jesus offers. But here's the thing. I, I want, I'm bringing this out for a purpose. And that is that we assume too much. When we fight off Jesus, when we fight off the gospel, we assume we're going to win. You assume you're going to be able to hold on to everything that you are scared of. These guys assumed that if they could just kill Jesus, they'd keep their place and their nation. And yet, in 40 years' time from when this occurred, you would find out that the, this very temple that they were in was demolished by the Roman, by the Roman military. And the very nation they wanted to hold was scattered throughout Rome. By the end of another 70 years later, they wouldn't even be allowed to go into Jerusalem again until far into the Middle Ages. My friends, sometimes the, the trick is we end up losing out on what we hold on to the tightest. My children know this. They stand there with that special pencil. The other one takes it. Then they punch them. Now guess what happens to the pencil? I give it back to the original owner? No, it's gone. I put it in a desk somewhere because they're not going to get to fight over some object. The same thing can often happen with, with God and us. He will take away that thing that we covet and love the most. Think President Nixon for a minute. How much did he grab on to power only to have it lost because he was grabbing on to power? 
There's so many illustrations throughout our life. I just want to warn us because the bottom line is you will lose what you think you're holding on to. Jesus said it this way, what is it gaining? What do you gain if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? And that's the final real warning that, the, that it gives. Our unbelief believes that somehow in our assumptions we're going to win because our narrative tells us so. And we're going to be like the movies and overcome anybody who wants to stop us. But in the end, all the things we fear we'll lose, you will lose because of our sin and because of judgment. And God didn't want you to lose those things. He wants to give you identity. He wants to give you purpose. He knows who you are. He knows exactly who you are to be. He knows you better than yourself. And the reality is that we can fight, but God's going to shatter those illusions because he's going to use our assumptions and fears and fightings for his own purposes. Notice what happens here. So they spring their trap. In verse 52 or 53, they go on to say, um, from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. And then Jesus can't hang out any longer, so he goes up north. And then it goes on through 55 through 57 that everybody in Jerusalem is told, if you see Jesus, tell us, it's Passover time, we're going to take him. And so everybody's the watchdog and keeping their eye out against Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, so it looks like Jesus is in a big problem, except that God intended it. How can I say that? Except in verse 51. Caiaphas just says, hey, this one guy should die the whole na- so that the whole nation will not perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, it says, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And his point is that Jesus was intended to die to bring the whole church in, to bring all of us who are living in all the nations into his one church. And so when Jesus was intended to die to bear our sins, Caiaphas, in all of his sin, in all of his arrogance, speaks this sinister reality, but God is using it for prophecy. That's a powerful example that he will take anything we dish out and use it for his purposes. How can you ever assume you can beat a God that does that? He takes your sin and flips it to the good. Takes our evil motivations and uses it to bring about good. He will ultimately and in the end succeed 100% completely. So it's no wonder now, what I, I, I suggest to you is to examine these assumptions, to examine these fears, to, to, to look at the fightings and realize God flips these things. Because even in the persecuted world where Christians are dying like crazy, it's the seed of them, or the blood of the martyrs, it's the seed of the church. Wherever you sign, find persecution the greatest, you often find the church growing the fastest. Because it is there that the faithfulness to Christ is revealed. And you can't beat it. In that way. So the flip reality then is this. The God's promises to you are greater than the things that you'll lose. One guy who I mentioned to you earlier named Saul realized this. While killing off the church, part of that raging persecution that he had brought, Jesus himself shows up after he's been resurrected and knocks Saul to the ground. And tells him, I'm going to use you now. And now Saul, who had all these things to lose, suddenly realizes who he is and gives his life to Christ and becomes who you and I know as the Apostle Paul. Now note what he writes about that sacrifice, that giving up in his life. He says, for this light momentary affliction, speaking of all the pains and sufferings he went through, are preparing us, for us, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
And it's clear that the things we are willing to give up for Christ, the things we are willing to lose for him, he is willing in his rewards to fill in in eternity. Oh, he'll give you a greater identity. He'll give you greater things. For he will give you the opportunity to chase greater things than this earth. And so he says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so I want to challenge you to realize is this simple sentence that he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. And I don't think it's foolish to look at what you may lose and count that cost as long as you look at what there is to gain. And the Bible has promise after promise after promise of what there is to gain. And I want to encourage you to examine that. And as you look into it, to bring that to your friends and your neighbors who are working through their disbelief. Because we need to allow them to see the great gain is so great, it's beyond all comparison. Challenging thoughts, I think, this morning, but I hope it stimulates your thinking and encourages you to get out there and to connect with those around you, knowing that we're asking them of a great cost. But many of them may be ready to make it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to kind of open up what you've told us about disbelief. And there's so much more. But indeed, it is clear that there are assumptions our friends and our loved ones have, yet even we still own. That, God, we ask that you would expose them. There are those in our lives, God, who are fearful of what they will lose because of what you're asking them to drop. We ask that you'd help them to have courage. And God, there are those who are angry. In fact, they are lashing out at us in ways that, um, that call us, make us angry. God, may we be humble to simply receive it as you did and not to fight back, but to love. And God, I pray that that love might open their hearts. And all these pieces, God, we ask that you'd be glorified. Give us direction, we pray. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray.